If you have your Bible, please, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to preach on a passage I've never preached on, never taught on before in my life. I've taught through Acts and kind of glossed over this. But as we're looking at the subject, the power aid, the power aid, we're going to come to the subject today of the most important question. The power aid is the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been talking about. The Holy Spirit, the one who comes in power, the one who comes to give us insight, direction, wisdom. We are, we've learned over the last four weeks that the Holy Spirit comes into our life to do something that we cannot do in our own strength, in our own power. God has, has showed us what that means. And just like I, I mentioned my, my cousin, Mike, who was overcome with cystic fibrosis and, and what that meant in his life, just like that, the Holy Spirit enters our life and it changes everything. It colors everything. It should anyway. And more than Gatorade or Powerade or some drink that you drink, what the Holy Spirit does is this inner power, this inner connection with who God is as, he, as we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us forever, we're told. But there's still one question. What's the most important question? Now that depends on the situation, right? The most important question. If you study a foreign language, what's the first question that they typically teach you in a foreign language? You know what it is? If you're going to go on a, on a uh, you're going to travel overseas, you're going to go to a foreign country, you know what the first question they normally teach you is? Where's the bathroom? I mean, there are some things that are important to be able to ask. That's the question if you're going to a foreign country, and you think I'm joking. Uh, that was one of the first things I learned in Russian, one of the only things I learned in Russian, and I've forgotten it because I haven't been there in a long time. For many men, the toughest question, maybe not the most important question, but the toughest question for most men is, will you marry me? That's a tough one to get out. It's a relational thing. And uh, when I'm doing premarital counseling as a, as a pastor, a couple comes to me and they say, oh, we want to get married. One of the first questions I pose to the couple, to both of them is, why do you want to get married? It's amazing some of the answers you get back to that. That's... Uh, it's kind of startling to me. I think that would be a no-brainer. I love her. I love him is the correct answer in case you ever find yourself in that situation. But there's another question that needs to be asked. You see, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to indwell us. We want the power. We want the insight. We want the direction. We want the wisdom. We want all of the things that the Holy Spirit is. We want to be part of your life. And the Lord asks this one question of us, why? Why do you want me? Why do you want me in your life? Why do you want my power? Why do you want my strength? Why? Because for a lot of us, we think, oh, because... We're supposed to, oh, because the Bible tells us, oh, because I was raised in a church, oh, because, because, because. If you have a little child that comes to you, I know that uh, when we were at, at Christmas with our grandchildren, we, we were speaking to one of them, and, and Nicholas, our, our four-year-old, uh, my daughter's son, my grandson, he had all the why questions. Papa, why is the sky blue? Papa, why, why do we use ketchup on that and not on everything? How can, we can, how can we can have ketchup with french fries, but we can't have it with everything else? There is no an good answer to that question, by the way. We should have ketchup with everything. Why? He asked me why about everything that we did. And the Lord says, why? 
This is where we're going today. This is the question. We, we hopefully will ask and answer the most important question when thinking about this whole topic. Why do you want the Holy Spirit in your life? And some of you are saying, well, that's not the question that I thought we would be asking. Well, stay with me. Watch what happens with this. Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 21. And here's the, here's the way we're going to pose the first part of this. Why do we want spiritual gifts? And the reason that I use the terminology spiritual gifts, if you have the Holy Spirit, we're told in, in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and you can write that down and look it up later, or 1 Corinthians 12, the whole chapter talks about spiritual gifts. How many spiritual gifts are there? Depends on where you go. We're going to look at another passage in Ephesians that lists four. There's a, the passage in Romans that lists, I think, about a dozen. The passage, 1 Corinthians, talks about even more than that. I don't know that there are a definitive number of spiritual gifts. I think that there are categories given to us and we're supposed to fill in the blank. But beyond your talents, beyond your natural abilities, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and, and, he, and you get him at the time that you're saved, he indwells you at that point of salvation when you're filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's what we talked about last week. When you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, there's also this special giftedness that you have. And we're going to look at that, what happened in Acts chapter 8, and maybe the downside of that. Acts chapter 8, verse 5 Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. That verse has so much information, I have to stop for a minute. We have to set the scene for just a second. I promise we'll get to where we're going in a minute. Who was Philip? He was not one of the original disciples. He was not one of the original 12. Philip was one of the seven deacons in Acts chapter 6. It said that, the, that the, those who were preaching and teaching on a daily basis had a problem because some of the Hellenistic Jews, those who were more... Uh, Gentile, Greek background, they wanted some things, and those who were not, the Hebraic Jews, those who had a Hebrew background, they were fighting over who got the biggest piece of chicken at the potluck. I mean, that's really what it was. Who's going to serve the dinner, and how's it going to be served? And so they, they had seven people, and it says that the, the Holy Spirit, they were full of the Holy Spirit, and they were well-versed, and they chose, the church chose these seven to relieve the pastors, to relieve the teachers from some of the chores. And so Philip was one of these. Now it also says he went down to a city in Samaria. Samaria by the way, is Samaria uh, south of Jerusalem? No, it's actually north. But if you, when you go to Israel with us on the trip that's coming up this next year, if you go to Israel, you'll notice everything's down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is one of the high points of the whole nation. So they always say if you go anywhere from Jerusalem, you go down. And he went down to Samaria, which was actually north, and he went to a place that the people were hated. Why did the Jews hate the Samaritans so much? There's, there's three reasons, and I'll give them to you briefly, and then we'll go back to the story. Philip went to a place where the people were hated by the Jews. If you can think of the people that you hate the most, this is where Philip went. But they were hated for a couple of reasons. Number one, in 722 B.C., 722 years roughly between, before the time of Christ, the Assyrians came and they overran the northern part of Israel. And the Samaritans were part of that northern part of Israel, but they did the unthinkable because the Assyrians realized that if they intermarried with the people that they captured, then they would not rebel as much. And most of the Jews resisted this, but the Samaritans were the people who said, sure, we'll take your daughters, we'll give you our sons, and they intermarried with the Assyrians. That's the first reason they were hated. It was really racial prejudice. The second thing was, uh, in about 300 uh, years before Christ, about the time of Alexander the Great, 
because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they wouldn't let them come to the temple area. They wouldn't let them have anything to do with the temple. And so the Samaritans said, if we can't come to Jerusalem and we can't worship there, we're going to build our own temple. So they went to Mount Gerizim and they built their own place to worship. And the Jews hated them. It was a religious difference that had gotten, I mean, they fought over this. And the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that Jesus talked to, you remember what she says? She says, well, you choose worship in your mountain and we worship in our mountain, which is the right one. She's going she's to fight with Jesus over this. But there's a third reason. About 167 years before Christ, in 167 B.C., the unthinkable happened again. After Alexander the Great, the, the Greek uh, nation divided into four parts, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, they were fighting over Jerusalem, and the Seleucids came to the Jews and they said, side with us in this squabble between these two portions of the Greek empire. And the Jews says, we're not going to have anything to do with any of it. We don't want any of the Greeks here. But the Samaritans sided with the Seleucids, and because of that, Jerusalem was overrun once again. So the Jews hated the Samaritans because they, of a racial prejudice, because of religious differences, and because of a political battle that was going on. I mean, I, I hate to use these words, but it was almost like Democrats and Republicans trying to get together. It, it was really a tough thing. Is anybody out there this morning? Yes, sir. So here's the story. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, the most hated people, and proclaimed the Christ, the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Now look at this. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. I mean, this is like one of the movies you see, right? And many paralytics and cripples were healed, people who could not walk, could not move. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced a sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, a God power, known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. What are they doing? They're checking on these people. They hate them. They don't want them to accept Jesus Christ. They don't want them to be a part of the church. So they send Peter and John there to straighten out the, the, the situation. Look what it says in verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name or in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Why do we want the Holy Spirit? Why do we want the spiritual gifts that are associated with the Holy Spirit? Number one, uh, the question we need to ask is, are we seeking attention? 
Are we looking for attention? This is what Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, that's what he wanted. He loved the attention. Oh, here's the great power. Look at this guy. They, they were coming to him and asking him questions. Why is this such a problem for so many people? It is a problem. Uh, Amanda and I were speaking this morning even before she got up to sing and she says, I love that song when the music fades because she said, I don't ever want this ministry that she has, a ministry of music. She said, I don't ever want it to be about me. I want it to be about the Lord. I love it when people say, oh, I appreciate your song or I love your voice or whatever, but I really want people to say, oh, that made me think of who God is in my life. And so many times we don't do that. We love the attention that's, that's poured on us. And that's, that should be a problem for us, but it's not enough of a problem. Now, some people take this passage, just so you know, since we're studying the Holy Spirit, they take this passage and they see this proves that you're saved at one point and later you get the Holy Spirit because that's what happened to the Samaritans. I think the best answer I've ever seen to that is uh, by a scholar. His name is Richard Longenecker, and this is what he wrote. What if the Spirit had come upon them at their baptism when administered by Philip? What if the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit then? Undoubtedly, what feelings there were against Philip and the Hellenists would have carried over to them and they would have been doubly under suspicion. You remember I mentioned that Philip was one of these guys that was one of the first seven deacons and they were split. The Jews were already split. The Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jews and they, the, the Hellenists were in disfavor in Jerusalem. And so they would have said, well, yeah, that's just Philip. You know, he's already, he's this Greek guy. He claims to be a Jew, but he's just this Greek guy. And so that's really what this is all about. Listen to what he says. But God in his providence withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit till Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans. Peter and John, two leading apostles who were highly thought of in the mother church at Jerusalem and who would have been accepted at that time as brothers in Christ by the new converts in Samaria. In effect, therefore, in, his, in this first advance of the gospel, outside the confines or the area of Jerusalem, God worked in ways that were conducive not only to the reception of the good news in Samaria, but also to the acceptance of these new converts by believers at Jerusalem. I mean, this is the first wave. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the, the earth. You remember the Samaria part? When he said that, if, if you were one of the early disciples, you would have said, I'll go to Jerusalem and Judea, but Samaria? Come on, Lord. Not them. The Lord says, go to your neighbors. The Lord says, go to those in California. He says, go to those in the U.S. And then he says, go to Iraq and Iran and North Korea. Go to those that you consider your enemy and tell them the good news that Jesus Christ is a Savior and Lord. And that's, I think, why this is, this is not the pattern for the church, but it's the inauguration of the church. And that's why I think that we all get the Holy Spirit. Other than this, and by the way, do you notice when they got the Holy Spirit, there was no speaking in tongues. They were not the sign gifts that we normally accept. But Simon saw something here. He saw a shift in attention. Peter and John show up, the two apostles, and he sees this, and what does he say? Let me pay for some of that. Let me have some of that. I want the attention that these guys are getting. 
You see, sometimes you want a spiritual gift. You want a sign from the Holy Spirit. You want the Holy Spirit to be in you like he is in someone else. But when Paul is writing one of the earliest letters in the New Testament to the church at Corinthians, at Corinth, called 1 Corinthians, look at what it says, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. I've got news for you. Even if you believe that the sign of the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues, not everybody is supposed to speak in tongues. Paul makes that absolutely clear in Romans. He makes it absolutely clear in 1 Corinthians. And if somebody says to you, have you received the Holy Spirit? When you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll you'll speak in tongues. You can say to him, well, that's not what the Bible says, because that's not what the Bible says. And in fact, Paul makes a, a big point of saying that there are some sign gifts. Hold your place in Acts. I want to go over to 1 Corinthians. We may not get through half the message today, but we're going to have a good time with where we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to look at that for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer to all those questions is no. No, they don't. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Oh, so that must be the sign gifts. I'll keep reading. And now I will show you the most excellent way. And you know, there's no chapter division in the original letter. Now I show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that could move mountains, that's a huge miracle. How many of you have moved a mountain with your faith? Yeah, I didn't think so. If you could move Mount Shasta closer, it would be a lot easier for me to ski if you could just get a little closer. Could, had all the faith that could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, and have not love, I gain nothing. And then he says something that had to just startle the church in Corinth. Verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. I believe the sign gifts stopped in the early church. I believe that God used them to authenticate what he was doing in the early church. And shortly after that time, those sign gifts stopped. Are we seeking attention? Is that what we want from the Lord? Number two, are we seeking miracles? We live in a what-have-you-done-for-me society. What have you done for me lately, right? Don't we, don't we act that way? Anybody here know who Shaquille O'Neal is? Shaq, yeah, he, he play, he's a little guy who plays in the NBA. He's little, like I think he has a size 15 shoe. I saw an actual shoe, one of Shaq's actual shoes one time. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's like a rowboat. It's huge. I, it, you know, it just boggles my imagination. Shaq has been in the NBA for 18 years. In the last four years, he's been on four teams. He's now a Boston Celtic, okay? Poor guy. This year, he's, he's going to have to play for the league minimum, the league minimum for a veteran is $1.2 million. My heart breaks for this poor guy. Bless his heart, he's only made, they said, $150, $160 million, and he's going to have to play for only a $1 million this season. I, you know, let's pray for Shaq. Okay, that's sarcasm, in case you didn't know that. The problem is Shaq also announced a year ago that he was divorcing his wife, and when one of the reporters came to him and said, this woman has stood by you, there's been some controversy, he's had a tough time fitting in with some of the different teams. Uh, Shaq and Kobe Bryant hated each other when they were on the Lakers, and he's found somebody to hate on every team since then, I think. 
And his wife has stood by him, and one of the reporters came to him and said, Shaq, why would you divorce this woman who's been so supportive? And I quote, this is what he says, I just could not see what she brought to the table for me anymore. Whew. Wow. That's amazing. What have you done for me lately? And you say, well, that's just Shaq. Oh, is it? Or is it just us? Lord, you know, I, I love what you're doing, but I need to see a miracle today. I, had, I talk to people all the time, well, if I could just see the Lord do a miracle today. It's not really a new problem. John chapter 6, 26, look at what happens. Jesus has fed the 5,000. Later on, he'll feed 4,000 more, 5,000 men, 4,000 men. That could have been 12 to 15,000 to even 20,000 the first time, 11 or 12,000. And what do they do? The next day, they come looking for him. He's left the area. And they come looking for him, and, and they say, where were you? We wanted you. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were, looking, you were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do we want the Holy Spirit because we want the miracles? Do we want the Holy Spirit so God can heal us or, or, or do something like that? Do you want the miracles or do you want the miracle maker? Do you want the miracles or do you want the Savior? Do you want the miracles or do you love Jesus Christ? Why do you come to him? Are we seeking miracles? Here's the third one. Are we seeking approval? Are we seeking approval? And that's a little different from attention. Uh, this is where, it, maybe it's a little more subtle, but, but you know, a lot of times we want the attention. We want the sign gifts. We want the big things. We want the miracles. We want God to do in our heart and our life what he needs to do. But are we seeking approval? Are we following where God is leading? Are we asking God to approve of where we're going? Is that different? Have you ever asked God to just approve of what you're doing? It's the, what I call, it's my favorite prayer. It's called bless this mess prayer. Bless this mess. Lord, I've made a mess of my life. Would you bless this? And would you somehow work it all out? I know I've really messed up my life, but now can you work it out? And the Lord says, wait a second, do you want me to lead or do you want me to just put a stamp of approval on who you are? Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Are you a servant of Christ or are you trying to tell Christ what you want him to do? Simon had already decided what he wanted. He was asking God to put his stamp of approval on his magic, on his sorcery. Hey, if I give him money, maybe he'll, he'll give me some of this extra and it'll be a big show. You know what's the saddest part of this? Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, is, is probably the one known later on as, as Simon Magoo. And that word means the one who called himself magnificent. The one who was boastful. The, the Simon the arrogant is probably the best translation. And Simon the arrogant is the one who who taught all kinds of false things in all kinds of churches, fell away from the Lord. It says he, he believed and he was baptized into the church, but he said the words, but he never had the Holy Spirit living in him, and he was a disaster. Is that why we want a particular gift? Do we ever ask the Lord to just bless our theology? I, I have a, a favorite story, and I... And I I hesitate to use it because we're running a little short of time, but I want to use it anyway. Because sometimes what we do is we come to the Lord with, pre, uh, with an agenda. We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, this is what I want you to do today. Like the people uh, described by, by Chuck Swindoll. 
There's a, there's a group of people who believe when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, what they teach about that is not what's in the Bible. It's not at all what's in the Bible. And there are even seminars. Chuck Swindoll tells about a couple. He says, recently I, I heard about a married couple who'd attended a seminar taught by one of these male demagogues, determined to show that Scripture teaches that the man is in charge at home. It was a kind of terrible teaching on submission that turns women into lowly doormats where men wipe their feet on them and abuse them and order them around. Well, the husband just loved it. He'd never heard anything like it in his life in a seminar like this. He loved it because his wife was sitting next to him and he drank it all in. His wife, however, sat there fuming as she listened to hour after hour after hour of this garbage. When they left the meeting that night, the husband felt drunk with fresh power as he climbed into the car. While driving home, he said rather pompously, well, what did you think about that? And his wife didn't even respond. She didn't utter a word, so he continued, I think it was great. When they arrived home, she got out and followed him in silence into the house. Once inside, he slammed the door and said, wait right there. Just stand right there. She stood tight-lipped and stared at him. I've been thinking about what that fellow said today, and I want you to know that from now on, that's the way it's going to be around here. You got it. That's the way things are going to run in this house. I am the boss, and you are the servant. You submit to me, woman. Having said that, she, he didn't see her for two weeks. And after two weeks, he could kind of see just a little bit out of one of the eyes that had gotten the swelling down. That's not what the Bible teaches. But some of us want God's stamp of approval on what we teach and what we believe. And God says, that's not me. If you know anything about what it says in Ephesians, the first thing it says is submit one to another. Before he gives any directions to the woman, it says submit one to another. And it also says to the man that he's to love the wife as Christ loved the church. Are you willing to die for your wife? I mean, if you understand the teaching, it's a totally different thing. But we don't get that. Are we seeking approval? Well, that's what we want from spiritual gifts a lot of times. And you say, well, pastor, I'm kind of offended. You kind of, you kind of put us in the same category. No, I put me in the same category as Simon sometimes. Lord, what have you done for me? Would you do this miracle? Go over to Ephesians chapter 4, because here's the other side of it. What does God intend spiritual gifts to do? What does God in spirit, intend spiritual gifts to do? Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read back to a section we looked at a few weeks ago in this discussion. But look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There's one body, one Holy Spirit. You are part of the body of Christ if you're a believer. You may be a hand, you may be an appendix, you may be a big toe, you may be a little toenail, but you're part of the body. It says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Did you get the concept that we're supposed to be one? One, 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 seven times. But to each of us, verse 7, but to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace is the Greek word charis. That's the charis. And if you, if you take another form, the word is charisma or charismatic. That's where the charismatic movement comes from because charis is not only used for grace, but it's also used for gifts. It says, but each one of us 
each one, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high and he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And by the way, let me just stop once again. That's a quote. The quote in verse uh, 8 is from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is what, they, is what the, the Jewish historians tell us, and especially a man by the name of G.B. Caird. He found out that Psalm 68 is what they read every year when they came to the day of Pentecost because it was talking about God giving gifts, and it was talking about the harvest. And the harvest is the Holy Spirit in our life. Look back at verse 11. It was he... Who? Christ, through the Holy Spirit. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. You might be a supporting ligament in the body. The whole body held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What does God intend spiritual gifts to do? What are we supposed to be according to what the Bible tells us? I see four things from this passage, and we're going to go through them quickly. Number one, we should equip believers. If the Holy Spirit indwells us, if we have these spiritual gifts, we should be equipping one another. We should be equipping believers. What does that mean? Well, the very word prepare, where it says uh, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people. What he's talking about there, there's, that's a Greek word that means to, bend, to, to bind up the broken bone, to put it back right, to prepare us, to fix what's broken in us. And we're supposed to be equipping one another. Apostles, the prophets were the foundational ones. The evangelists win the loss to the Lord. The, the pastor teachers to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. What does it mean to equip? Again, uh, this, this last Christmas when we were there at Christmas time, Nico, our little four-year-old grandson, I mean, Nico's the why and he's got all the questions, but one day he gets up early and he comes to me and he, and he, and he grabs my pants and he says, Papa, and I said, what? And he says, I'm hungry. And I said, well, Nico, we're all going to have a big breakfast. He says, I know, but I need a pre-breakfast. And I said, well, we don't really have pre-breakfast. He says, well, Papa, sometimes we have appetizers at my house in the evening, and I want an appetizer for breakfast. And the, the very fact that a four-year-old knew what an appetizer was, I thought, okay. And I said, what would you like? He says, I need Cheerios. And I said, I don't know if we have Cheerios. And he said, well, something similar to Cheerios would be really good. So we found the cereal, and I poured him a bowl, and he said, more. And I said, this is a pre-breakfast. He says, more, Papa. And I poured more, and, I, and, and he says, Papa, I'm a growing boy. I need lots of Cheerios. So I had this heaping bowl of Cheerios. And I said, well, Nico, this is just a pre-breakfast. Are you sure you can eat it all? And he says, no, Papa, just pour the milk. So I pour the milk. He put, you know, two or three cups of sugar on it. I'm the grandfather. You let him do whatever, you know. Come on. 
And he sat down to eat it, and he looked at me and says, Papa, where's yours? And I said, well, I'm not having a pre-breakfast. I'm going to have breakfast with everybody else. And he goes over to the cabinet, he finds a bowl, and he takes and he starts spooning Cheerios. And there's stuff going everywhere. And I said, let me help you, Nico. What are you doing? And, he's, and, he's, and he puts it out half and half, and he's measuring and looking, and he says, Papa, there's your Cheerios. And I said, well, Nico, I don't really want Cheerios. And he says, Papa, you need them to grow strong. He wanted to equip his papa for works of service. And in his heart, he had this desire that if he's going to grow, he wants the person next to him to grow. He knows his mama tells him he needs to eat, and he's trying to get his little brother to eat because eating was a big issue for Lincoln, his two-year-old Down syndrome brother. God says he wants to equip us. You know, in, in class 101, we always talk about every member a minister. What's your ministry in the church? What do you have that you do? Oh, I come on Sunday morning. No, what's your ministry in the church? Well, I, you know, I don't really have talents. No, the Bible says everyone has a spiritual gift. Well, I, I just don't know what my part is in the body. You have a ministry. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul is talking to his, his protege, his, this young man. He says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. He says to Timothy, Listen, be careful here. Don't, don't fall into this habit where you're the only one doing it. You need to be able to tell others, to teach, to, to take a part in the ministry. What has God equipped you to do? What has he given to you? Teresa Gunn left last week. Her brother uh, Vince Boyza passed away, and she went to live with her daughter in, in, uh, in, southern, or in central California. And when she went to live with him, one of the things she said to me, a couple of things she said, number one is, you know, until about three or four years ago, when I went through class 101 with Vince, and I, and I finally learned that I'm supposed to use my spiritual gift, I always told Vince I don't have anything to add to this church. Well, Teresa said, I, I realized that I had something I could do. She said, I love to sew. And so she began to sew blankets and, and quilts. And she made booties. She loved to knit. And she would knit booties for the little children. And she began to use her talents. Sandy Ingeman, a couple of years ago, was approached by some women. They said, we need somebody to teach a lady's Bible study. And she says, well, I, I don't know that that's my gift. And yet she has had an incredible impact. on How many women have been in the, in the women's Bible study? Raise your hand. That's because you were part of the body that you were supposed to be. Roger Ingeman is an incredible craftsman. This pulpit right here, he built this, the sound table. If you've never been up to see the sound table, you need to go up the stairs to the balcony. We have a new pulpit in the, in the uh, Mian church that Roger made that is a replica of this, but smaller because Ton's a little shorter than I am. And it's made out of bamboo because it's a Mian church. And Roger teaches a, a Sunday school class, a very careful study through First John and exegesis of, of John because Roger's doing what he should do. Or Roger Estes, who is a tremendous carpenter who's helping us in the restroom. Sandy is helping out in the library. And then you have Herb, who's done electrical work. And you have Joanne, who's done the interior decoration. She, she does the flowers. And I, and I could go on and on and on. Lisa Castro and Alex up there uh, today working. Uh, Lisa does the video. Alex does the sound. And Alex has a couple guys backing him up. But we need somebody that will consistently back up Lisa. We get here Sunday night a lot of times. And, and somebody says, oh, yeah, I'll be there. But they're not here. And we don't have anybody to run the video sometime. Lisa, who has a full-time job and a, and a new baby and, and so many things going on, she needs somebody to back her up. 
And we have a want and we say we need volunteers. And if we don't get volunteers, we may have to eliminate a ministry. My question is, what has God equipped you to do? What talent has he given you? He says, well, I'm not a teacher. Okay, can you listen? Do you have two ears? Come listen to the kids say their verses. Well, I'm not good listening. Are you good just directing a game? Can you throw a ball out and say this is what you do in the game? Can you do that? You say, well, I'm busy on Wednesday nights. Do you know how many kids we've had saved in Awana? Do you know how many kids have come to know Jesus Christ and grown because of Awana or Sunday school? And you say, well, pastor, you're being too tough on me. No, I'm not being tough enough. Because God says every member should have a ministry. That's what it says here. To equip the people for works of service. Here's the second one. We're, we should edify others. A building is an edifice. A building is an edifice, so you're, if you're edifying, you're building one another up. It says that it says that, that the body of Christ may be built up. We're here to build each other up. You remember the Saturday Night Live? Boy, I'm really going to show my age here. Hans and Franz. It was uh, Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon. We're here to pump you up. Sorry, that was the best impersonation I could give. I love that skit. I'm, I don't know why. These guys in bodybuilding suits, and we're here to pump you up. That's what we're supposed to do. We're, so, we're supposed to pump one another. We're supposed to build one another up. And you say, well, that's silliness. No, that's what we're supposed to do. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.3. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening. There's two ways you prophesy. One is to tell the future and one is to tell the truth. And if you prophesy, you're telling the truth. You're telling forth the gospel, not, not foretelling the gospel, but telling forth the gospel. You speak to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. You see, we should be here building one another up. If you come up to my office on the third floor, and by the way, we don't have an elevator. We do that so that it, it, you know, if, you don't, if you have a bad heart, bad, bad lungs, you never get to see the pastor around here. No, that's just the way the building was built. I'm on the third floor. If you come up to my office what do you see in my office? What's the thing that dominates the landscape? Well, there's a beautiful window, but what you normally see, what most people remark on, is all the books in my office. I've got all kinds of books in my office. I have books from C.S. Lewis and Randy Alcorn, and I have, I have books by Mark Buchanan and John Ortberg. Why? Because I need to be built up so that I can build you up. That's why we have a library, and, and, and we talk about this you know what one of the greatest tragedies is? That we have this great library with all these resources, and you never go by and get built up. I've told you before that uh, we have people who have a gift of building, Steve and Jackie Rika. They, they hate it when I talk to, about them, but they have the gift of encouragement. They write cards. They, they send little gifts. It's, it's not... They, they just have this ability to say, keep on, keeping on, and, and we love you, and... and, and I love it when, when we break up the whole congregation and Steve and Jackie are one of the, the deacons over part of that congregation. I love it when my name falls under their auspices because of what it means that they're going to do to build me up during the year. I had a pastor, Jerry Westcott, that I served with in, in, in Upland, and Jerry Westcott was a mentor to me, and he built me up. And, and over the, the past few years after Jerry died at 66, one of the things I told Jerry's widow and told Jerry before he died is, I was going to try my best, and now I have three pastors that I meet with every month, and I'm there to build them up, and I'm there to build you up. Or what are you doing to build someone else up? We should equip believers. We should edify, build up one another. We should be an effective body. We should be an effective body. 
David Jeremiah posed this question, and I love this question. Now listen, what would your church look like? What would Cross Point Community Church look like if everyone in your church was just as committed as you are? They gave like you did, they attended like you did, they taught like you did, they participated like you did. What would Cross Point Community Church look like if everyone at the church was just as committed as you are? Would it be healthy or anemic? Would it be struggling or vibrant? Would it be weak or listless as each part does its work? Two weeks ago, I was out riding. I haven't been out on the bicycle very much recently, but two weeks ago, and there was this bicycle built for two, this tandem bicycle. And I mean, this guy is just, he is, he's pumping along. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's doing great. He had a little boy, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old on the back. And I'm, I was impressed by the dad in front. I mean, he was pumping along. He was going uphill. You know why I was so impressed? Because the kid had his feet up on the handlebars. The guy in the back wasn't, wasn't doing anything. And we came to a stop, and I stopped for a minute, and I said to the dad, how far are you going? He says, I don't know. I'm not, he says, I'm kind of out of breath today. I'm not good. I don't think I can go as far as I normally go today. And I say, do you think it would help if your son would pedal? And he looked back, and he says, you're not pedaling? He said, Dad, I'm tired. i got news for you. I'm tired. And there's some people in this church that are tired because there's some people that are not peddling. I don't know how to say it in any other way. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, Now to each one of you the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. For the common good. Uh... Tony Dungy said he loves working in the church because it's just like working in the NFL. Did you know the church is like the NFL? This is what he says. This is what Tony Dungy says. The church is like the NFL. There are 80,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise, and there are 80 men on the field who desperately need rest. You say, I can't teach, I can't lead. What can I do? You can do something. We should be an effective body. I got news for you. It doesn't take much for your body to be ineffective. We were moving some furniture around in the office, and I got my, my finger caught, my, my ring finger caught between the wall and the furniture. By the way, that doesn't feel good, in case you want to know that. And it, I don't think it broke it. I can still play the guitar. I can still move it. But I haven't had my ring off for a couple of weeks because my knuckle is just swollen enough that I can't get my ring off. You know, for us A-type personalities, that's not a good thing. Because I normally take my wedding ring off every night. For some of you who have not had your wedding, I want it off right now. In fact, if I had bolt cutters, no, I, I wouldn't do that right now. It doesn't take just a little swelling of one knuckle. And all of a sudden, something's not working the way it should. Here's the last one. We should be an effective body. We should be exalting Christ. Every spiritual gift should point people to Christ, not to us, a church, or anything else. We should be exalting Christ. This is not about me. This is not about the church. This is about Jesus Christ. What are you doing? What did you do to exalt Christ? You say, oh, pastor, I was singing the heart of worship, and man, I was really worshiping here on Sunday. What did you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? How did you exalt Jesus Christ? I, I, 
I've been fascinated. We were on vacation in South Dakota. A woman gave us four novels from Randy Alcorn, and, and they're each one of them about 500 pages long. And, and over the last four weeks, I've read, I've read all four of those novels, and, and they're fascinating novels. I've read those in, a couple, in addition to a couple of other books. And, and as I was reading these novels, Randy Alcorn impresses me with his picture of what heaven's like, his picture of what's satanic about what spiritual warfare is like. But one, one of the things that I love about Randy Alcorn all the way through his novels, all the way through all of his books, it's always about not exalting himself or the character, but exalting Jesus Christ. First Peter 4, when, when Peter's writing, it says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. I think Peter just gets carried away when he says, listen, if you speak, it ought to be the very words of God. Whatever you do, when you change that diaper in the nursery, when you help out in children's church, when you help out in Awana, when you help out with youth, whatever it is that you do, you ought to be serving as if you're serving Jesus Christ because you are, and you ought to be lifting him up. And he gets to the end, he says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Peter's just overwhelmed by who God is in his life. Are you? Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he's in prison. He's chained. And he says, I eagerly, and ex I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Is that your prayer? That Christ will be exalted no matter what happens? That Christ will be exalted in your body? You see, I, I ran across something on the internet, and, and I think it's really true. It says, the Bible is not, uh, the Bible is not a Snuggie. You know what the Snuggie is? Those crazy things, those big, huge things with big, long arms, and you just snuggle up in them. The words in the Bible will not go down like Ambien. The Bible is not written to calm or coddle you. With God's help, he says, I intend to incite a riot in your mind, to trip your breakers and turn out the lights in your favorite hiding places, insecurity and fear. Then flip the switch back so that God's truth illuminates the divine destiny that may have been lying dormant inside you for years. In short, I'm out to activate your audacious faith. Audacious faith. To inspire you to ask God for the impossible and in the process to reconnect you with your God-sized purpose the potential that God's given you. The man that wrote this is a taxi cab driver. He was a taxi cab driver for 20 years in New York City. No theological training. No, no background in the church other than he went to Brooklyn Tabernacle Church and knew Jim Cimbala, but he was never in the choir. And all of a sudden, he, said, he realized that he was not using his gifts and his talents. He was born in Haiti. And so six months before the big earthquake in Haiti, he had gone back to Haiti to, to visit friends, and some of the people there said, our church is without a pastor, and he decided he would be the pastor of this church in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. A cab driver, taxi cab driver from Haiti, for 20 years in New York City, went back to be a preacher. He had no theological background, and he began to pray that God would do something. And this was his prayer, God, do whatever it takes to light this fire on church for Jesus Christ. And then the earthquake came. 
He said the biggest praise was, he said, on the, on the day that the earthquake came, they were having a, a big school, a big time for the children. He said there were 150 children gathered outside the building, but for some reason the, the power was not working. We couldn't get the lights on. And he said because of that, we made all of the children stand outside. And he said after the earthquake, we looked inside, and there was not two inches from the ceiling to the floor. Every one of those 150 children would have been killed that day if they'd been inside the building. And he prayed, Lord, what do you want to do in me? May your name be glorified. And he wrote one letter to a friend in New York who wrote another letter to a friend in New York, who wrote another letter to a friend in New York, and they began to write letters all over the country. The first church that was rebuilt in Port-au-Prince was the church that this guy is the pastor of. They raised $650,000. They did not accept a penny from any government source, from any other charity. It was all by people sending 10 and 15 and $20 from New York, from New Jersey, from other places. He began to write people because he used to collect cards when they were in his cab. And he would say, I'm now a pastor in Haiti. I need you to send me 50 or $100. And they would send him 20 or $30, $650,000. The building is completely redone. It's got all new paint. They're building a school with the extra money. And he says, may Jesus Christ be praised. He said, it's not about me. It's about what God is doing in his work through me. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. My question is, why do you want the Holy Spirit? Why do you want the Holy Spirit in your life? That's the question that you need to ask. There's only one right answer, that Jesus Christ may be praised, that the church might be effective, that you might be equipping other believers, that you may be an effective minister of the gospel, that you might be building up others. That's the only right answer. Last week I asked for people to respond and there was the, the place was full in the front. This is a little different response. My question is this. Is there something you should be doing that you know you should be doing that you're not doing? To be a minister, to have a ministry, not a pastor, but to have a ministry in the church. If so, I want you to take one of the response cards out of the back of the chair after we've prayed. I'm going to talk for just a minute. I want you to take the response card. I want you to put your name, and I want you to say, I want to serve what God would have me to serve. Father, you know every heart here of every person. And Father, this is about your Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts, the equipping that you've given us as a church. And Father, we have failed. And I pray the same prayer that that man, who is a cab driver, who would not allow his name to be used because he does not want the glory. Father, I pray that same prayer, whatever it takes to make this church effective, equipping, emboldened, enabled, whatever it takes, Father, do that in the hearts and lives of every person who's sitting here today who hears this message even by radio. May your Holy Spirit anoint us and empower us, and equip us, and edify us. And may we do that for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.